Chapter Two, Part One of The Battle of Life. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Battle of Life by Charles Dickens, Chapter Two, Part the Second. Snitchey and Craggs had a snug little office on the old battleground where they drove a snug little business, and fought a great many small pitched battles for a great many contending parties. Though it could hardly be said of these conflicts that they were running fights, for in truth they generally proceeded at a snail's pace, the part the firm had in them came so far within the general denomination, that now they took a shot at this plaintiff, and now aimed a chop at that defendant, now made a heavy charge at an estate in chancery, and now had some light skirmishing among an irregular body of small debtors, just as the occasion served, and the enemy happened to present himself. The Gazette was an important and profitable feature in some of their fields, as in fields of greater renown. And in most of the actions wherein they showed their generalship, it was afterwards observed by the combatants that they had had great difficulties in making each other out, or in knowing with any degree of distinctness what they were about, in consequence of the vast amount of smoke by which they were surrounded. The offices of Messrs. Snitchey and Craggs stood convenient, with an open door down two smooth steps, in the market-place, so that any angry farmer inclining towards hot water might tumble into it at once. Their special council-chamber and hall of conference was an old back room upstairs, with a low dark ceiling, which seemed to be knitting its brows gloomily in the consideration of tangled points of law. It was furnished with some high-backed leathern chairs, garnished with great goggle-eyed brass nails, of which, every here and there, two or three had fallen out, or had been picked out, perhaps, by the wandering thumbs and forefingers of bewildered clients. There was a framed print of a great judge in it, every curl in whose dreadful wig had made a man's hair stand on end. Bales of papers filled the dusty closets, shelves, and tables, and round the wainscot there were tiers of boxes, padlocked and fireproof, with people's names painted outside, which anxious visitors felt themselves, by a cruel enchantment, obliged to spell backwards and forwards, and to make anagrams of while they sat seeming to listen to Snitchey and Craggs, without comprehending one word of what they said. Snitchey and Craggs had each, in private life as in professional existence, a partner of his own. Snitchey and Craggs were the best friends in the world, and had a real confidence in one another. But Mrs. Snitchey, by a dispensation not uncommon in the affairs of life, was on principle suspicious of Mr. Craggs and Mrs. Craggs was on principle suspicious of Mr. Snitchey. "'Your Snitchey's indeed,' the latter lady would observe, sometimes to Mr. Craggs, using that imaginative plural as if in disparagement of an objectionable pair of pantaloons, or other articles not possessed of a singular number. "'I don't see what you want with your Snitchey's, for my part. You trust a great deal too much to your Snitchey's, I think.' and I hope you may never find my words come true." While Mrs. Snitchey would observe to Mr. Snitchey, of Craggs, that if ever he was led away by man, he was led away by that man, and that if ever she read a double purpose in a mortal eye, 
She read that purpose in Craggs's eye. Notwithstanding this, however, they were all very good friends in general, and Mrs. Snitchey and Mrs. Craggs maintained a close bond of alliance against the office, which they both considered the blue chamber and common enemy, full of dangerous, because unknown, machinations. In this office, nevertheless, Snitchey and Craggs made honey for their several hives. Here, sometimes, they would linger, of a fine evening, at the window of their council chamber overlooking the old battleground, and wonder, but that was generally at Assize time, when much business had made them sentimental, at the folly of mankind, who couldn't always be at peace with one another and go to law comfortably. Here, days and weeks and months and years passed over them. Their calendar, the gradually diminishing number of brass nails in the leathern chairs, and the increasing bulk of papers on the tables. Here nearly three years' flight had thinned the one and swelled the other, since the breakfast in the orchard, when they sat together in consultation at night. Not alone, but with a man of about thirty, or that time of life, negligently dressed, and somewhat haggard in the face, but well-made, well-attired, and well-looking, who sat in the armchair of state, with one hand in his breast and the other in his dishevelled hair, pondering moodily. Messrs. Snitchey and Craggs sat opposite each other at a neighbouring desk. One of the fireproof boxes, unpadlocked and opened, was upon it. A part of its contents lay strewn upon the table, and the rest was then in course of passing through the hands of Mr. Snitchey, who brought it to the candle, document by document, looked at every paper singly as he produced it, shook his head, and handed it to Mr. Craggs, who looked it over also, shook his head, and laid it down. Sometimes they would stop, and, shaking their heads in concert, look towards the abstracted client. And the name on the box being Michael Warden, Esquire, we may conclude from these premises that the name and the box were both his, and that the affairs of Michael Warden, Esquire, were in a bad way. "'That's all,' said Mr. Snitchey, turning up the last paper. "'Really, there's no other resource. No other resource.' "'All lost, spent, wasted, pawned, borrowed, and sold, eh?' said the client, looking up. "'All,' returned Mr. Snitchey. "'Nothing else to be done, you say?' "'Nothing at all.' The client bit his nails and pondered again. "'And I am not even personally safe in England? You hold to that, do you?' "'In no part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland,' replied Mr. Snitchey. "'A mere prodigal son with no father to go back to, no swine to keep, and no husks to share with him, eh?' pursued the client, rocking one leg over the other and searching the ground with his eyes. Mr. Snitchey coughed, as if to deprecate the being supposed to participate in any figurative illustration of a legal position. Mr. Craggs, as if to express that it was a partnership view of the subject, also coughed. "'Ruined at thirty, said the client. "'Huh!' "'Not ruined, Mr. Warden,' returned Snitchey. "'Not so bad as that.' 
You have done a good deal towards it, I must say, but you are not ruined. A little nursing—a little devil,' said the client. "'Mr. Craggs,' said Snitchey, "'will you oblige me with a pinch of snuff?' "'Thank you, sir.' As the imperturbable lawyer applied it to his nose with great apparent relish, and a perfect absorption of his attention in the proceeding, the client gradually broke into a smile, and looking up said, "'You talk of nursing. How long nursing?' "'How long nursing?' repeated Snitchey, dusting the snuff from his fingers, and making a slow calculation in his mind. "'For your involved estate, sir? In good hands? S and C's, say? Six or seven years?' "'To starve for six or seven years!' <laughs> said the client, with a fretful laugh, and an impatient change of his position. "'To starve for six or seven years, Mr. Warden,' said Snitchey, would be very uncommon indeed. You might get another estate by showing yourself the while. But we don't think you could do it, speaking for self and Craggs, and consequently don't advise it. What do you advise? Nursing, I say, repeated Snitchey. Some few years of nursing by self and Craggs would bring it round but to enable us to make terms, and hold terms, and you to keep terms, you must go away. You must live abroad. As to starvation, we could insure you some hundreds a year to starve upon, even in the beginning, I dare say, Mr. Wharton. Hundreds, said the client, and I have spent thousands. That, retorted Mr. Snitchey, putting the papers slowly back into the cast-iron box, there is no doubt about, no doubt about, he repeated to himself, as he thoughtfully pursued his occupation. The lawyer very likely knew his man. At any rate, his dry, shrewd, whimsical manner had a favourable influence on the client's moody state, and disposed him to be more free and unreserved. Or, perhaps the client knew his man, and had elicited such encouragement as he had received, to render some purpose he was about to disclose the more defensible in appearance. Gradually raising his head, he sat looking at his immovable adviser with a smile, which presently broke into a laugh. <laughs> After all, he said, my iron-headed friend, Mr. Snitchey pointed out his partner, self and, excuse me, Craggs. I beg Mr. Craggs's pardon said the client. After all, my iron-headed friends, he leaned forward in his chair and dropped his voice a little, you don't know half my ruin yet. Mr. Snitchey stopped and stared at him. Mr. Craggs also stared. I am not only deep in debt, said the client, but I am deep in— Not in love, cried Snitchey. Yes! said the client, falling back in his chair, and surveying the firm with his hands in his pockets. Deep in love. "'And not with an heiress, sir?' said Snitchey. "'Not with an heiress.' "'Nor a rich lady?' "'Nor a rich lady that I know of, except in beauty and merit.' "'A single lady, I trust,' said Mr. Snitchey, with great expression. 
"'Certainly.' "'It is not one of Dr. Jedler's daughters,' said Snitchey, suddenly squaring his elbows on his knees and advancing his face at least a yard. "'Yes,' returned the client. "'Not his younger daughter?' said Snitchey. "'Yes,' returned the client. Oh, "'Mr. Craggs,' said Snitchey, much relieved, "'will you oblige me with another pinch of snuff?' "'Thank you. I am happy to say it don't signify, Mr. Warden. She's engaged, sir. She's bespoke. My partner can corroborate me. We know the fact.' "'We know the fact,' repeated Craggs. "'Why, so do I, perhaps,' returned the client quietly. "'What of that? Are you men of the world, and did you never hear of a woman changing her mind?' "'There certainly have been actions for breach,' said Mr. Snitchey, "'brought against both spinsters and widows, but in the majority of cases—' "'Cases!' interposed the client impatiently. "'Don't talk to me of cases. The general precedent is in much larger volume than any of your law-books.' Besides, do you think I have lived six weeks in the doctor's house for nothing?' "'I think, sir,' observed Mr. Snitchey, gravely addressing himself to his partner, "'that of all the scrapes Mr. Warden's horses had brought him into at one time and another, and they have been pretty numerous, and pretty expensive, as none know better than himself, and you and I, the worst scrape may turn out to be, if he talks in this way—' this having been left by one of them at the doctor's garden wall, with three broken ribs, a snapped collar-bone, and the Lord knows how many bruises. We didn't think so much of it, at the time when we knew he was going on well under the doctor's hands and roof. But it looks bad now, sir. Bad? It looks very bad. Dr. Jedler, too. Our client, Mr. Craggs. "'Mr. Alfred Heathfield, too. A sort of client, Mr. Snitchey,' said Craggs. "'Mr. Michael Warden, too, a kind of client,' said the careless visitor. "'And no bad one, either, having played the fool for ten or twelve years. However, Mr. Michael Warden has sown his wild oats now. There's their crop in that box, and he means to repent and be wise.' And in proof of it, Mr. Michael Warden means, if he can, to marry Marian, the doctor's lovely daughter, and to carry her away with him. "'Really, Mr. Craggs,' Snitchey began. "'Really, Mr. Snitchey, and Mr. Craggs, partners both,' said the client, interrupting him. "'You know your duty to your clients.' and you know well enough, I am sure, that it is no part of it to interfere in a mere love affair, which I am obliged to confide to you. I am not going to carry the young lady off without her own consent. There's nothing illegal in it. I never was Mr. Heathfield's bosom friend. I violate no confidence of his. I love where he loves, and I mean to win where he would win, if I can. He can't, Mr. Craggs said Snitchey, evidently anxious and discomfited. "'He can't do it, sir. She dotes on Mr. Alfred.' "'Does she?' returned the client. "'Mr. Craggs, she dotes on him, sir,' 
persisted Snitchy. "'I didn't live six weeks, some few months ago, in the doctor's house for nothing, and I doubted that soon,' observed the client. "'She would have doted on him, if her sister could have brought it about. But I watched them. Marion avoided his name, avoided the subject, shrunk from the least allusion to it with evident distress.' "'Why should she, Mr. Craggs, you know? Why should she, sir?' inquired Snitchy. "'I don't know why she should, though there are many likely reasons,' said the client, smiling at the attention and perplexity expressed in Mr. Snitchy's shining eye, and at his cautious way of carrying on the conversation, and making himself informed upon the subject. "'But I know she does. She was very young when she made the engagement.' if it may be called one, I am not even sure of that, and has repented of it, perhaps. Perhaps. It seems a foppish thing to say, but upon my soul I don't mean it in that light. She may have fallen in love with me, as I have fallen in love with her. He? He? Mr. Alfred, her old playfellow, too, you remember, Mr. Craggs, said Snitchy, with a disconcerted laugh. <laughs> knew her almost from a baby. "'Which makes it the more probable that she may be tired of his idea,' calmly pursued the client, "'and not indisposed to exchange it for the newer one of another lover, who presents himself, or is presented by his horse, under romantic circumstances, has the not unfavourable reputation, with a country girl, of having lived thoughtlessly and gaily, without doing much harm to anybody.' and who, for his youth and figure, and so forth—this may seem foppish again, but upon my soul I don't mean it in that light—might perhaps pass muster in a crowd with Mr. Alfred himself. There was no gainsaying the last clause, certainly, and Mr. Snitchy, glancing at him, thought so. There was something naturally graceful and pleasant in the very carelessness of his air. It seemed to suggest— of his comely face and well-knit figure, that they might be greatly better if he chose, and that, once aroused and made earnest—but he had never been earnest yet—he could be full of fire and purpose. A dangerous sort of libertine, thought the shrewd lawyer, to seem to catch the spark he wants from a young lady's eyes. Now observe, Snitchy, he continued, rising and taking him by the button, and Craggs, taking him by the button also, and placing one partner on either side of him, so that neither might evade him. I don't ask you for any advice. You are right to keep quite aloof from all parties in such a matter, which is not one in which grave men like you could interfere on any side. I am briefly going to review in half a dozen words my position and intention, and then I shall leave it to you to do the best for me, in money matters, that you can, seeing that, if I run away with the doctor's beautiful daughter, as I hope to do, and to become another man under her bright influence, it will be, for the moment, more chargeable than running away alone. But I shall soon make all that up in an altered life. "'I think it would be better not to hear this, Mr. Craggs,' said Snitchy, looking at him across the client. "'I think not,' said Craggs, and both listened attentively. 
"'Well, you needn't hear it,' replied their client. "'I'll mention it, however. "'I don't mean to ask the doctor's consent, because he wouldn't give it me. "'But I mean to do the doctor no wrong or harm, because, "'besides there being nothing serious in such trifles, as he says, "'I hope to rescue his child, my Marion, from what I see, I know she dreads.' and contemplates with misery, that is, the return of this old lover. If anything in the world is true, it is true that she dreads his return. Nobody is injured so far. I am so harried and worried here just now, that I lead the life of a flying fish. I skulk about in the dark. I am shut out of my own house, and warned off my own grounds. But that house and those grounds— and many an acre besides, will come back to me one day, as you know and say, and Marion will probably be richer, on your showing who are never sanguine, ten years hence as my wife, than as the wife of Alfred Heathfield, whose return she dreads, remember that, and in whom, or in any man, my passion is not surpassed. Who is injured yet? It is a fair case throughout, my right is as good as his, if she decided my favour, and I will try my right by her alone. You will like to know no more after this, and I will tell you no more. Now you know my purpose and wants. When must I leave here? In a week, said Snitchy. Mr. Craggs? In something less, I should say, responded Craggs. In a month said the client, after attentively watching the two faces. "'This day, month. To-day is Thursday. Succeed or fail, on this day, month, I go.' "'It's too long a delay,' said Snitchy. "'Much too long. But let it be so. I thought he'd have stipulated for three. he murmured to himself. "'Are you going? Good-night, sir.' "'Good-night.' returned the client, shaking hands with the firm. "'You'll live to see me making a good use of riches yet. Henceforth the star of my destiny is Marion.' "'Take care of the stairs, sir,' replied Snitchy. "'For she don't shine there. Good night. Good night.' So they both stood at the stairhead with a pair of office candles watching him down. When he had gone away they stood looking at each other. "'What do you think of all this, Mr. Craggs?' said Snitchy. Mr. Craggs shook his head. "'It was our opinion, on the day when that release was executed, that there was something curious in the parting of that pair, I recollect,' said Snitchy. "'It was,' said Mr. Craggs. "'Perhaps he deceives himself altogether,' pursued Mr. Snitchy, locking up the fireproof box and putting it away. Or, if he don't, a little bit of fickleness and perfidy is not a miracle, Mr. Craggs. And yet I thought that pretty face was very true. I thought, said Snitchy, putting on his greatcoat, for the weather was very cold, drawing on his gloves and snuffing out one candle, that I had even seen her character becoming stronger and more resolved of late, more like her sister's. Mrs. Craggs was of the same opinion returned Craggs. "'I'd really give a trifle to-night,' observed Mr. Snitchey, who was a good-natured man. 
if I could believe that Mr. Warden was reckoning without his host. But, light-headed, capricious, and unballasted as he is, he knows something of the world and its people. He ought to, for he has bought what he does now, dear enough. And I can't quite think that. We had better not interfere. We can do nothing, Mr. Craggs, but keep quiet. Nothing, returned Craggs. Our friend the doctor makes light of such things, said Mr. Snitchey, shaking his head. I hope he mayn't stand in need of his philosophy. Our friend Alfred talks of the battle of life. He shook his head again. I hope he mayn't be cut down early in the day. Have you got your hat, Mr. Craggs? I am going to put the other candle out. Mr. Craggs replying in the affirmative, Mr. Snitchey suited the action to the word, and they groped their way out of the council chamber, now dark as the subject, or the law in general. End of Part 1 of Chapter 2